If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians, and we'll be in chapter 4. We're so thankful that Christmas has finally arrived. It does just seem like it ended last year. Things are going faster and faster. It's probably more a function of my age than it is the calendar, but I'm glad that it is upon us. Next week, it certainly will be here because that is our Christmas program Sunday. And so let me just say a word about that, and you'll hear more about it at the end of the service today, in both services. But next week, our uh, summit praise team, our choir, and our orchestra, and uh, all that are involved in our uh, music ministry across both services will be a part of a special Christmas presentation. And so we'll do this two times next week. We'll do the same thing, both hours. We'll do it at 10.15, which is our normal time for worship. And then we're going to turn around and do it again at 4 o'clock. And so I want to invite you, first of all, make sure you're here. Uh, this should be the centerpiece of your Christmas celebration. We'll be worshiping the Savior. We'll be Christmas all the time. This will be a great way to honor the Lord and to begin all that we'll do for our Christmas family celebrations this year. But I also want to invite you, ask you to invite other people to come. Uh, so this is something we want our whole community to be a part of. There is no better time of the year to invite somebody to point their lives toward Jesus than at Christmas time. And so let's take advantage of that. Invite somebody, invite your neighbors, invite your coworkers, maybe even people who wouldn't ordinarily come to a worship service just to hear a, a long sermon by a bald-headed guy. They'll come for Christmas songs, and we'll certainly have plenty of Christmas songs. So invite some people to come. Now let's talk about seating next week. We will have Sunday school at 9 o'clock, as we always do, and then worship at 1015. We expect a pretty packed house at 1015. And so if everybody who is in Sunday school and everybody who is in our celebration service today and our summit service, uh, if all of you plan to come to the 1015 service, uh, we're going to have to sit in each other's laps, uh, which is probably not how we want to celebrate Christmas this year. So we encourage some of you to plan a nice early lunch, a brunch, whatever you want to call it, come to Sunday school, go spend some time with your family. Maybe you get your whole Sunday school class together and go spend a little time and plan to come back at four o'clock. It'll be the same thing. You won't miss a thing, I promise. But we'll have a 1015 service, a four o'clock service. Now, if you're inviting community, of course, they're welcome to come at 1015, but probably the best time for them to come is four o'clock. And so you invite them to come, be a part. It'll be a special, special day this next Sunday. So you have your Bibles open, I hope, to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to begin by reading just one verse, and then we'll go back and read some more. But verse 14 is the key verse in this passage. It says, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. Paul here, the writer, 
uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mixes some metaphors, if you will, but he compares many Christians and many churches, first of all, to little children. Now, we love little children, and little children are precious to us, but little children also have some weaknesses, right? Little children can't often tell the difference between the truth and a lie. Little children can't recognize danger. Little children can't feed themselves or sustain themselves. And so the Apostle Paul compares Christians, many Christians, and churches, some churches, to little children. What he's saying is that some Christians can't tell the difference between the truth and a lie. Some Christians can't recognize spiritual danger. Some Christians can't feed themselves or to sustain themselves spiritually or, or emotionally. And so he compares Christians and churches, some of those, to little children. But then he says that, that they're often also like a ship in the ocean that is tossed by the waves and blown by the wind. And so think of a ship, no anchor, no rudder, no sails. It's just at the mercy of the water and it's at the mercy of the wind. And so it's blown this way and blown that way. It has no control over its destination. And he says that many Christians and many churches are just like that. They can't stand in one place. They don't know what the truth is, and even if they did, they couldn't stand firm there. They're just blown by the winds of our culture. From this position to that position, there's no real stability. Now, he says there's a reason for this, and he gives us, in fact, three reasons. He says part of it is because of the wind of teaching, or your Bible might say the wind of doctrine, just what we believe. What he's alluding to here is that there are so many false teachers. There are people who have platforms who are standing and, and teaching us things, telling us things that, that just aren't true. The Bible says in 2 Peter 2, 1, there were indeed false teachers among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Those will sow destructive heresies, and that certainly is the case today. There are teachers, even within churches, that are teaching prosperity gospels. There are teachers that are, that are spouting some liberation theology. There are churches that are teaching a works-based liturgy for salvation. Then there is Islam, and, and there, there's the Mormon church, there's the Jehovah Witness church, there's, there's all kinds of false teachers in this world, and, and that's one of the reasons why so many Christians or churches are like children, or they're like a ship tossed in the sea. He says another reason is because of human cunning with cleverness. The word for human cunning here. Is, is the word cubia. Uh, it's the word where we get our word cube. It referred to a dice, to a die that they would roll when they were playing a game. And oftentimes those, those dice would be weighted so that it would, it would trick people. It would, it would make one thing appear to be true when something else was true. And oftentimes these false teachers will confuse us because they trick us they say things, maybe they are particularly good at saying things, but they don't say the true things, and it just brings great confusion. 
The Bible says in Colossians 2.8, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition. Let's don't be fooled by people. And then he says that we're children and we're, we're ships tossed in the waves because of the techniques of deceit. And this is the same word that we'll study a little later in our series on Ephesians when we get to chapter 6, verse 11, and we learn about the schemes of the devil. And so this tells us that there's even a demonic influence that, that confuses us. And so, so many Christians today and so many churches are just confused. They have bought into a lie. They are like little children. They don't know the truth. They're like, they're like ships tossed in the waves. They're confused. Now, what are they confused about? Well, I, I just took some time this week and wrote down maybe a dozen, maybe more than a dozen things that I, I hear that I think people are confused about. And, and let me just give you an example. Let me just read through some of these. These are false statements. These are not true, but these are things that oftentimes Christians and even churches may, may embrace. Doctrine is unimportant as long as we just love people. Have you heard that? What we believe is not important as long as we love people. How about this? Just voicing a prayer where you ask Jesus Christ into your heart is enough for salvation. How about this? If you live right, God will make you prosperous. How about this? It does not matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Heard somebody say that? How about this? If you try hard enough to be good enough, that will be enough for God to accept you. There are many different ways to be saved. Haven't you heard some of these? Many religions are essentially the same, and they just simply represent different pathways to the same God. Some people will continue will continue to live an ungodly life, yet still be Christians. In the end, there is no hell, and God's love will save everyone. A wise person is someone who just follows his heart. If it seems right, feels right, or most people think it is right, then it is right. The Bible does not give clear instructions on contemporary issues such as homosexuality or abortion or racial justice. There is no objective truth, but rather truth changes from one generation to the next or from one culture to the next. It is wrong to say something is wrong or to hold people accountable to a standard. Joy and peace can be found in something other than abiding in Christ and the black race came from the curse of Ham in the book of Genesis. So I don't know how many that is, but I've heard all of those things in the last year. I've heard people, uh, people who, uh, who report to be Christian and perhaps are, uh, are people who certainly love the Lord, and they have bought into these lies, they have believed these things because they are, as the Apostle Paul says, children, they are like spiritual children, and they are tossed by the winds and the human cunning of cleverness. We must make sure 
that we don't fall on the wrong side of Ephesians 4, 14. Paul says, you are no longer like this, but we know that for many Christians today, they still are like that. So if that's the problem, what's the solution? If so many people are confused about the truth, if so many people are spiritually immature like children, then what's the solution to that? Well, we find the solution, one solution, right here in Ephesians 4. I want to start reading in verse 7, but really the solution goes from verse 7 all the way down through verse 16. And we'll look at all of those verses before we wrap up today. But let me read it, and then we'll come back and see if we can categorize some of these truths. Verse 7 says, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now here the gift is not the gift of salvation. This is a spiritual gift. This is a supernatural enablement to do something to serve the church. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Verse 8 it says, For it says, When he, speaking of Jesus, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive, he gave gifts to people, but what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. Now, this is just simply a description of the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, and then the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus was on high. He was in heaven, so to speak, but he came to earth. He was incarnated. He became flesh. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He was buried, the lower parts of the earth here it refers to, and then he was resurrected. He ascended again. That's the story, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now look what he's done. Look at verse 11. It says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now we need to pause here a moment because he tells us about four different ways that God has gifted people to serve the church and we should know what these are and, and, and how they apply today. Now, if we, if we expand our reading and we look at what the Bible says in the book of Romans about spiritual gifts and we see what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians about spiritual gifts and in other places, we learn that God has gifted many people to serve in many different ways. And that's the beauty of the church, that we've all been supernaturally enabled to serve the church in all kinds of different ways so that together it just paints a beautiful picture of effective service. So if you've got a, a football team, you need an offensive lineman and you need a receiver. Now, those positions are not often interchangeable. A receiver's probably about 190 pounds, runs a 4-2-40. The lineman may be 310 pounds and runs a 5-2-40. You can't just swap those. They're different people. But you need both of them to be effective on the field. And so our church, the church, needs some people to do this and some people to do that. And if we have something missing, then we are not the church that God 
desires for us to be. And so he's given us all these different giftings, and four of these are listed here, but it's just four. No, there are many, many more than this. This is just four. But there are four here, and we need to understand uh, what they are. The first two are what I call foundational giftings. Uh, we might call them offices in the church, and they were offices, but to use that word takes our focus away from the fact that this is just some way that God has gifted people to serve, one of many different ways that God has gifted people to serve. Now, the first two, apostles and prophets. Now, I call these foundational offices or giftings because these were, these were offices that God used in the beginning when he established the church. They were the foundation of the church, and we no longer have these or a need for these today. Now, you see that in a number of places in the Bible, but since we're studying in the book of Ephesians, I want you to see it here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says that the church is built on the foundation, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So this is, this is the foundation. Now, who were the apostles? Well, the apostles were those that were given the, the responsibility, the enablement and the responsibility to bring scripture to, to the church. Uh, it's uh, people like the apostle Paul. It would be Peter. It would be others who, who God used to bring scripture to the church. And they were especially appointed and gifted for that purpose and they brought scripture to the church. They had a very unique assignment as a foundation for the church. When the apostles died, they didn't replace them. Why? Because we had the revealed word of God at that point, and we had no more need for an apostle. Now, there are apostles with a, with a little a, the word apostle in the Greek just means messenger, and certainly in that sense we're all apostles, but there is no apostle today with a capital A. If you ever hear somebody call himself an apostle of the church, then you need to run from that person. That is not a biblical office today. There's no need for it, and there's no historical or biblical sanction for that. So there were the apostles and then there were the prophets. Ephesians 2.20 says, the apostles and the prophets were the foundation. And so the prophets would expound upon God's word before the scripture was canonized. They were very important, very important for, for the church. Now, the other two offices, evangelists and pastor teachers, they are offices, giftings, uh, two of many giftings that the Lord uses today. So what are evangelists? Let's start there. So evangelists, while we all have a responsibility to evangelize, to share the good news, an evangelist is someone who is supernaturally enabled to do it well. Uh, I think specifically today in the arena of mass evangelism, and some people just have the, uh, well, the gifting, the spiritual gifting to do that. I think about a, a friend that Don and I have uh, he's a minister, he's a pastor today, uh, but he served for many years just as an evangelist. And I had him come and speak in churches that I pastored, and uh, the churches loved him to death. But honestly, when he would preach, it was a C-plus message at best. 
Um, I hope he doesn't listen to this, but uh, he preached the truth, but, but it just, I mean, you had to work to stay awake. And some of you know what that's like today, I know, but, um, but he was just about a C-plus preacher, and he would finish, and then he would look out at the congregation, and he would say, today, some of you need to respond to the call of the Lord and be saved. And if that's you, that's my best uh, voice of his. If that's you, meet me down front right now. And people would pop up all over the sanctuary and they would just flood down and, and, and people made decisions for Christ and lifelong decisions. Their entire lives were changed. And I just scratched my head and I wonder what in the world is going on? Well, this is a man who just had that special gift of evangelism that he could call on people to make a decision. And, and it was just a just amazing to see that. He's a pastor now, and he's really struggling because it's a whole different gift, right? Evangelism and, and pastor teaching. I think the contemporary role for an evangelist today, somebody with this spiritual gift, is, is to speak to those, primarily speak to those outside the church, outside the church, whether it's to share the gospel or through apologetics or in some other way. And then there are pastor teachers. And we could go through it. I won't take the time. There's grammatical reasons uh, why we take those two words, pastor and teacher, and we, we put those together. Most scholars believe this refers to just one role. The contemporary role of a pastor teacher is to speak to those inside the church, inside the church. Now, it's interesting that the Bible, the New Testament, uses three primary words to refer to pastor teachers. And in each of these words, we see something of God's assignment to these people. There, there are some other words, but the words that are used over and over and over in the New Testament to refer to a pastor teacher, three words, and I'll share those with you. Uh, but first, let me give you a, a scripture passage because it's interesting, these words are found throughout the New Testament, but there's one passage where all three words are used in that one passage. So let me start with that. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. Just listen. I exhort the elders among you. That's one word, elders. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, shepherd God's flock. Shepherd, that's the second one we see here. Overseeing out of, not overseeing out of compulsion, overseeing, that's the third word. But willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly. So there are three words, three words. One is pastor, that is sometimes in our Bible translated uh, shepherd. And it emphasizes the pastor's role to protect, a shepherd would protect his flock, and he would feed his flock, make sure that they were well fed. Uh, the next biblical word, New Testament word, is the word for elder, and elder emphasizes uh, that a pastor should be a model, it also emphasizes his, his leadership. Uh, and you see this word over and over and over in the New Testament. Uh, it's often connected with teaching, with the role of teaching. I'll give you just one example, 1 Timothy 5.17. Elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So there's a connection there. And then the final word in the New Testament that's used often is overseer. In some Bible translations, it will appear as bishop. 
Um, and this is there uh, almost a dozen times. Let me read one verse, Acts 20, verse 28 says, uh, Be on guard for yourselves. It's a word to pastors. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So this emphasizes uh, leadership and supervision, but it's also connected with teaching. I'll give you an example. First Timothy 3.2, it says, an overseer, so it's referring there to a pastor, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. So we see here in verse 11 that here are four giftings, four of many giftings that God has given for a purpose. Look at verse 12. Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. And so the, the ministers are to equip the people in the church for the ministry. It's interesting, and you're not interested in any of the Greek stuff, but uh, I did look up this word. This is a, an unusual word in the New Testament because this is the only place it appears, the word behind the word here. And so I looked to see how the word was used in other literature of the time. And this word translated equip is used, it's used to refer to three things. Mending broken bones, okay, mending fishing nets, and fattening chickens. So my job as pastor, mend your bones, help you fish, and fatten you up uh, for, the, for the holidays. So now let's get back to the problem here. There are too many Christians, too many churches, immature in their faith. And what we see here is the beginning of God's strategy to make sure that we are not children and we are not tossed by the winds of our, of our culture. So let me go back through this uh, just as quickly as I can and share with you three or four ways, three or four ways that we mature, that we grow as Christians and we grow as a church. Number one, recognize that you have been gifted to serve. If you look back at verse 7, the first verse we read, you see that it tells us grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. All of us, and we've said it already, all of us have been gifted to serve, to serve in the church. You have been supernaturally qualified, enabled, to serve in some specific way in the church and through the church and for the church, you have a purpose here. Now, when you read in the New Testament, the emphasis isn't really on whether you've been gifted this way or that way. Nobody in the New Testament ever wonders, uh, what is my spiritual gift? Although it would be good to, to know that perhaps, but the the emphasis in the New Testament is simply to know you've been gifted, you are needed, you are qualified to serve, and there is, a, there is a need for you and your service that nobody else can feel. It's important that every person serves. Now, we're going to come back to this in a moment when we get to the end of the message, but I want you to recognize here that you are a key ingredient to the cake that God is baking at First Baptist Church, okay? Some of you are the flour, some are the yeast, some are the sugar, some are the eggs, some is, some is the oil or the fat, you know, I don't know where you fit in, 
But you have a place, and it is essential. Now, you might say, well, what does that have to do with being spiritually mature? We were talking about spiritual children, and now you're talking about serving the church. I don't see, Pastor, how those things are are connected. Listen, serving is a critical part of spiritual maturity. You know, we say here at our church that, that we're about making disciples for Christ. A disciple is someone who loves God, loves people, serves the body, and serves the world. That's what the Bible says. A disciple is someone who, who loves God, who wants to worship God, read his Bible, pray, and live a holy life. If you don't love God, you're not a disciple. A disciple is someone who loves people. Most of the commands in the New Testament require us to be connected with other believers. Love one another, pray for one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, forgive one another. We're connected with other people. If you're not connected with other Christians, you're not a disciple, not a fully devoted follower of Christ. The third one, serve the body. We've all been gifted. We've all been especially qualified to serve in the body in some way. And if you don't do that, then that is a critical part of your spiritual maturity and you are not spiritually mature. Part of growing as a Christian is finding a place to serve. If you don't find a place to serve, you will not grow spiritually. Well, number two, in our Bible strategy for maturity, if we're to recognize the gift that we've been given, number two is to support the role of your spiritual leaders. Now, we've already read verse 11, goes through the four giftings listed here. We've, we've seen verse 12, that those leaders are to equip us to do the ministry. So what does this have to do with our spiritual maturity? Well, your spiritual leaders have been gifted, have been qualified by the Lord, and have been given a special assignment. Now, in our Americanized, privatized, rugged, individual, Baptistic Christianity, you know, how we have morphed our faith just a little bit to make it fit what we do in this time in our country, we have come to the place where we believe that our spiritual growth is a personal matter. In fact, people will fight you over this. Pastor, it's uh, none of anybody's business. My spiritual growth is up to me. You know, churches today, we don't do spiritual, we don't do church discipline, I should say, even though it's in the Bible umpteen times. And why won't churches today do church discipline? Because we see our faith as this very private thing. You can't speak about my faith. You can't judge my faith. I will have this private, personal faith, and my growth is up to me, and my growth is my business, and you're not connected with my growth. I'll answer for me. I don't need a pastor, a pope, a priest to grow in my faith. If the church plays any role at all, it is just an occasional resource that I'll lean on uh, if I have a if I have a question. Now, the only problem with that is it's just not true, and it's not biblical. Your spiritual maturity needs the church and it needs the leaders, all kinds of leaders that God has placed in the church. Let me read this, uh, these same verses we've read. Let me read it in a different Bible paraphrase. This is the NLT and sometimes I pull out the NLT because it just makes things so plain. Just listen to this. This is the same verses we've read, 11 through 13. 
It says this, now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church. This will continue until all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. When God's leaders equip God's people to serve God's church, then that leads to spiritual maturity. That's what those verses say. When God's leaders equip God's people to serve in God's church, the result will be spiritual maturity. If you take any part of that out, then you don't equal spiritual maturity. I'll give you another verse, and I think we can show this to you on the screen. Hebrews 13, 17 says the same thing, but it it comes at it from a completely different perspective. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and with, uh, without grief, with no grief, not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. Now let's look at this piece at a time. He says, your pastors will keep watch over your souls. Now that means that the pastor, and I believe in our context, that's more than just me, but your pastors have a role to play in your spiritual health, in your safety, spiritual safety, and in your maturity. And then it says that the pastor will give an account. Have you ever thought of that? I think about it every single day. Uh, Some of you, well, no. I think about it often, okay, that I'll one day give an account, not just for me, but for you. Now, you'll give an account for yourself. There's no question about that. But I will stand and others serve in leadership in our church will stand before a holy God. And I will give an account for whether you have been equipped through God's word for the service of the kingdom. I'll be given, I'll be challenged to give an account for you and for you and for you. And if you don't think that weighs heavy on me and the other leaders in our church, you don't know us. But what does that mean for you? I believe that means that your spiritual leaders have a role to play in your spiritual growth. So this verse says right at the beginning, obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, that doesn't mean that the pastor is the boss of the church. That's not what this verse is about. But it means that the onus is on you to let your leaders equip you for service. Your spiritual maturity depends on that. If if God's leaders equip God's people to serve God's church, the verses say there will be maturity. If not, then there will not be. Number three, and I'm going to go quickly, strive to master Scripture. And so we see in verse 12 and 13 and 14, he he talks here, well, we should read, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, that's verse 12. Verse 13, until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity. Knowledge is an important part of this. The key words here are equip and knowledge and maturity. So how is that equipping done? It's primarily done through God's word. The Bible says, and you're familiar with these verses, 2 Timothy chapter 3, that says all scripture is given by God 
Uh, it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that, here's the result, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So it's the word of God. It's the word of God that equips us. You know, when we think about those false, confusing statements I gave earlier, things like doctrine is not important and if you live right, uh, you'll be prosperous, uh, all those things. The easy Remedy to each of those is what? Just knowing God's word. If you know God's word, you will recognize the lie. I'm told that the way secret service agents learn to recognize counterfeit bills, it's not that they study counterfeit bills, because there's all kinds of counterfeit bills. What they study is the real thing. And they become such experts at the real $100 bill that when they see a fake $100 bill, they recognize it immediately. We need to be such good students of Scripture that when we see or hear a lie, we just know that's, that's a lie. That's a lie. Well, let me go to number four. Embrace your integral value in the church. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Now he's talking about the church as the body of Christ because he says the head, which is Christ. Christ is the leader of the church. Christ is the boss of the church. So we're going to grow into the body of Christ, the church. He's more explicit in the next verse. He says, from him, the whole body, the body of the church, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. He talks about all these parts, and he says three things. He says they are fitted and knitted together. He, they are, it involves every supporting ligament and every part. Now, what does it mean that we are knitted together? That means that God, and this is a miracle, God has created the local church such that every part depends upon every part and it is essential to every part. A few years ago, we put a tongue and groove floor down in our kitchen, you know, the, where the boards all fit together. And after it was down, uh, there was a little construction accident and something was, uh, well, part of the floor was damaged. It was just right in the middle of the floor. And I, I should have thought about this, but it didn't seem in the beginning like such a big deal until they came out to, to repair it. They couldn't just replace one board in the middle of the floor. They had to take up nearly the entire floor because the board sort of ran around an island and around a corner because all those pieces were hooked together. So to get to one board, they had to, they had to pull out all kinds of boards because they were so dependent. Our church, every church, ought to have that kind of dependency. We have been fitted together, knitted together, it says. And then it says every supporting ligament. Uh, I had... Um, I had lunch with Ed Farron this week, a member of our church and an orthopedic surgeon, and we were talking about the different uh, joints in the, in the body and uh, just the complexity of those. And I don't have the mind to even begin to understand all of that. But you know, you've got the bones and the ligaments and you've got the muscles and you've got the cushioning material and I'm sure there's a word for all that, I don't know. But all of that is there and if any one part of it gets messed up, even though there may be a hundred parts to that knee joint, 
If one part gets messed up, what happens? The whole joint is messed up. Well, he says here that we are like that joint. We are, we, all, all of us are ligaments and pieces connected together. Now, what I want you to see is that for every one of you, that your experiences, your struggles, your gifts, and your failures are valuable to all the other people in the church. If you struggle with something, that's important to us. If you failed in some way, somebody needs to learn from that. If, if you've struggled to have children, you've got an important role here. If you've struggled in your marriage, you have an important role here. If you're gifted to teach children, you have an important role here. If you can sing a song, you have an important role here. All of us are important. And the church is weaker without your partnership. But, listen, I'm getting away from the point. We're talking about what? We're talking about how to be spiritually mature. And now I've shifted, it seems, to talking about how you can help the church. So here's what you're hearing, and then let me tell you that I'm saying something different. You're hearing, Pastor, the church needs me. The church needs me. The church needs my skills or my gifts or my experiences or my time or my resources. The church needs me. Okay, Pastor, I get it. I've heard that sermon before. I'll help out when I can. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. That is true, but I'm not saying that this intricate system tells us that the church needs you. I'm telling you, that is true, but I'm telling you that this intricate system tells you that you need the church. See, this whole section here is about spiritual maturity. It's about not being the spiritual children and being tossed by the waves. And it says you've got to understand how you fit in. Spiritual maturity comes from being fitted in to use some to use some bad, bad grammar, um, I was thinking how to explain this this week, and I thought about uh, something else I don't know anything about. I, I thought about uh, uh, repairing a car, and uh, for your car, no matter how fancy your car might be, for your car to have any real value to get down the road, it needs a fuel pump, right? And so you could say you've got a $50,000 automobile, but if you don't have that piece of metal and plastic, that fuel pump, then that car is not going to get very far. And it really doesn't matter how fancy it is and how pretty it is and what color it is and what all of its features are. If it doesn't have a fuel pump, it's, it, it, it has no real value. It, has no real, it can't fulfill its purpose. And so the church is the car and you're the fuel pump. But I want you to see the other way around. If you have a fuel pump without a car, that's pretty pointless too. I mean, if somebody just gives you a fuel pump for Christmas, what are you going to do with that? You just put it up on your shelf or something? That fuel pump is, is worthless to you. If you don't have a car to put it in, listen, the church needs you. But that's not the message today. If you're going to grow spiritually, if you're going to not be a child, if you're going to grow as a Christian, if you're going to be able to stand firm when, when the winds of, of hardship blow, when marriage is hard and family is hard and finances are hard and depression is hard and anxiety is difficult, if you're going to be able to stand firm, you need the church. You need the church. There is no spiritual maturity apart from the church, and you will not find, I challenge you to find, a biblical example contrary to that. He talks about those who are just tossed back and forth. 
those that are like children with no understanding of spiritual danger. And I'm just afraid that that describes so many people today. And my heart breaks for those people. But there's a strategy. And it's found in these verses. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. You know, the church is the body of Christ. It was Christ who died that we might be a part of this. We're hopeless without Christ and what he's done for us. It begins by putting your trust in Jesus Christ and then by following him and all he tells us to do. Father in heaven, may we honor you and may we grow and mature and be strong in the faith because of you and your word. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.